0: Good morning, and welcome again to Trinity Heights Virtual Service. Thank you for joining us again this morning as we begin part three of our series in 1 Corinthians, which we've entitled Healing the Great Divide. And we've titled this series Healing the Great Divide because Paul is addressing a church with a lot of problems. There are a lot of divisions in the Corinthian church, and we've been saying that rather than only addressing each issue individually, as if they're all separate and disconnected issues, Paul frames all the issues together with this vast theological vision. Imagine being picked up by the scruff of the neck and finding yourself lifted 50,000 feet above everything and you're looking down from above. That's what Paul is doing for his readers. He's drawing them this vast map of this vast terrain. Paul's way of dealing with each of these issues is by inviting his readers to be caught up in this way in a sort of cosmic drama. Of course, at first, it may appear that all these issues have virtually nothing to do with each other. Let me review the list once more because this list of problems which prompts Paul to write in the first place is uh, really at the heart of everything that he's doing with, with this letter. But it is a very diverse set of problems and it may not immediately, you may not immediately see the connections between them. There were divisions over moral conduct with various forms of sexual immorality. There were legal disputes where church members were taking other church members to court and suing each other. There were class divisions where the poor were being humiliated by the rich. There were divisions around the cult of personality where some people were attaching some sort of status to themselves because they followed certain leaders. And there was a sort of spiritual class system emerging where the division was between those who practiced certain spiritual gifts and those who did not. Oh, and there were divisions over whether or not you could or should eat meat bought at a market, but which had been sacrificed to idols before being sold. Did this count as idolatry or not? So you see why I say at first glance, it seems as though these are all very different and unconnected issues. What have, for example, class divisions, the exercise of spiritual gifts, and eating meat sacrificed to idols? What have these three things got to do with each other? But this is the genius of what Paul does. He's able to see the deeper underlying connections between each of these issues, and then he's able to frame them with this cosmic drama that revolves around the person of Jesus Christ. So let's start with how Paul deals with the division over spiritual gifts. Paul assumes, along with the church in Corinth, that God gifts each follower of Jesus with certain gifts given by his Spirit. And Paul conveniently lists them for us. He says, now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. So there are all of these spiritual gifts. But apparently, what had happened in the church in Corinth is that they were using these gifts to size each other up. And assess who was more spiritual and who was less spiritual who was spiritually mature who was spiritually immature and they had chosen the gift of speaking in tongues and sensationalized it as if this were the mark of serious spirituality which placed a sort of question mark over those people who didn't possess that particular gift and in this way they had started a spiritual class system within the church and It is in response to this that Paul uses his famous body analogy. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink, Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So, what we see Paul doing there is he's collapsing the distinctions of race, Jews or Gentiles, he mentions, and class, slave or free, he mentions. He's collapsing the distinctions between race and class. He says these class and race distinctions, which exist in the world and which drive and determine the way people treat each other and relate to each other, they are not going to determine the way you relate with each other. Because if you follow Jesus, you are part of each other. Paul wants to push them to a new level of mutual identification a new level of mutual identification he's saying you must see yourself as connected this deeply as as if you were members of the same body and so he he pushes this analogy as far as he can can taking it i think really to, to this really absurd place this is what he says if the whole body were an eye where would the sense of hearing be if the whole body were an ear where would the sense of smell be But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Ridiculous. But the purpose of taking the analogy off into this absurd place is because he wants them to know how absurd their behavior is when they create a spiritual class system within the church. The Gifts, as Paul points out, are for the building up of the church. Spiritual maturity and immaturity is actually about whether or not you divide people or you bring people together. The moment you try to divide, you're no longer serious. So Paul says you've misunderstood the purpose of God's god giving gifts to the church you, you your sensationalization of this particular gift shows you don't really understand what the gifts are for they're not for the individual person who exercises the gift but for the building up of the rest of the church okay that's one dispute let's take uh, for another example this dispute about eating meat sacrificed to idols should you eat food sacrificed to idols some said yes and others said no so here's what paul says so then about eating food sacrificed to idols we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no god but one but not everyone possesses this knowledge some people are still so accustomed to idols that they eat sacrificial food. They think of it as, as having been, when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Okay, so what we see here is that Paul leaves this as a matter of conscience. You know better if you do, you know better if, worse if you, if you don't. But, but then he gives this caveat. Be careful, however, Yet the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. What does Paul mean by calling some Christians weak and others strong? I'm a vegetarian. Am I a weaker faith person? Do I possess, do I not possess enough faith? Am I in a lesser class of Christian? Just asking those questions in light of what we just said about spiritual gifts should give us a clue as to what Paul is up to here. Paul is trying to heal divisions in the church. He wants them to understand that they're part of one body. That's his theme throughout this letter. So he's hardly going to create a two-tier spiritual class system whereby you can divide up the weak and the strong believer by whether or not they eat meat or not these meat sacrifice in these temples that would be counterproductive to the whole drive of this letter no paul is having a joke at their expense he knows this class system and class divide is how they think and so paul is saying this with his tongue firmly planted in his cheek it's sarcasm He's playing along for a moment with their silly game. You who are so strong, you super believers, you don't stumble your weaker brother. It's strong and weak in inverted commas. And and again, the real thing that separates the spiritual mature, the spiritually mature and the spiritual immature has to do with their posture towards the rest of the body. Is it one that brings people together or are you, creating divisions and we'll take one final issue there was as we noted an economic and a social class system some people are surprised that there was an economic diversity within the Corinthian church as we often tend to think of the early Christian movement as a movement of the underclass and Paul does say in chapter 1 and verse 16 of Corinthians he says consider your call brothers and sisters Not many of you were powerful, not many from noble birth. But not many of you doesn't mean that there weren't any of you. Clearly, the church was not primarily a movement of the privileged classes, but the qualifying phrase, not many, suggests that some of the Corinthian Christians were in fact wealthy and well-born. This is confirmed by the fact that Erastus, a city official of Corinth, who became part of Paul's mission team, uh, you can read about that in Romans 16, Acts 19, 2 Timothy 4. uh, He was a a man wealthy enough to fund and dedicate a very costly public pavement for the city. Uh, An inscription found in the city reads, Erastus constructed this pavement at his own expense. So there were different classes in the church, economically speaking. And this divide started to show up in ugly ways. Ironically, around sharing communion of all things, the very meal that is a symbol of us being members of, again, one body. Paul says, so then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat, Can't be the Lord's Supper. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not on this matter. Yes, again, there is such a thing as spiritual maturity and spiritual immaturity, but it's never based on any of the criteria which they're using. It always has something to do with their lives bringing people together or their lives dividing people up. The people who bring people together are the people who are already swept up into this cosmic drama of the gospel. They understand that if they follow Jesus, they are brought into a new special relationship with each other. So let me end with this. Where are you? How is your life a bridge between people? A bridge that brings people together. There are so many race, class, socioeconomic, national, cultural divides. And of course we're feeling the repercussions of those more intensely in these days next week we'll explore some of that in more detail but for now this week ask yourself where are you seeing those divides fall by the wayside because that's what paul is inviting the church to do yes all of those divides exist out there but in your relationships with each other where are you seeing those divides fall by the wayside i'm not talking about pretending that we are colorblind or unaware of economic differences or pretending that we don't have different political views It's not about pretending those differences don't exist, but how is your life a bridge that is bringing people together in spite of those differences? How are you speaking and acting in the lives of those around you so that these differences no longer have the power that we once thought they had, where they don't get to dictate the course and future of those particular relationships? When we follow Jesus, we are called not just to be a bridge between heaven and earth, as we talked about last week, a place where God makes himself present, but to be the bridge between what often seems to be an equally vast chasm, the one between each other. But the good news is, this is what Christ has already done for us, and so it is what we are destined to do for each other, amen.